Good morning. It's great to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for joining us. It's nice to have a break between the rain. So more rain tomorrow, though. So we'll see what happens. But okay. Um, so you know, a number of years ago, uh, when I lived in Lancaster, Ohio, we used to come with regularity to back to Pittsburgh, and we would do uh, inner city missions project in Pittsburgh, PA. So, uh, and we did it all over the place. Uh, and I think in this particular instance, we were on the north side of Pittsburgh. And that would be back in the late 1980s, which was like, you know, an eternity for some people uh, here. But, um, and so I would bring a group of students with me. Uh, we probably had about 30 students or so. And, um, one house that we were work, working on was a house that belonged to a group of Russian immigrants. So you know what was going on, ba going on back in the 1980s, right? It was the, the Cold War between the United States and uh, the former Soviet Union. And um, so these people were escaping the former Soviet Union and they came to Pittsburgh, they immigrated to Pittsburgh and uh, they bought this house, and they were, they were believers, very strong believers. And they were in the process of trying to make this house uh, into a home, uh, which was a real project, but it was, it was great. And so we, we were dispersed throughout the city, but there were a group of us who worked on that particular home. It was one of those homes where it was almost a caricature home. You know, like space in Pittsburgh can be pretty limited. So you can't go out this far very much, but you can go as high as you want, you know? So it was one of those really tall, skinny homes. And it probably had four or five floors to it uh, with one or two, what, like two, maybe two or three rooms on each level, you know? So we would work there. It was hot, really, really, really. I mean, it was blazing hot that summer. And uh, of course, they had no air conditioning. Um, and so we work in their house, and then towards the end of the week, they wanted us to um, come and have dinner with them and, and do a worship service in their home. And we said that would be fine. And actually, there were two or three families that were living in that home, um, and we would love to do that. So we, we brought uh, all of our students and then what I assumed would be just their family, but they also chose to invite their Russian church people as well. And so uh, we were, uh, we went into this, what you would call a living room, and we were just packed in there. I mean, you know, I mean, if you didn't get to know each other before, you certainly did there. So you couldn't move hardly, and sweat was running down, but we had a, a wonderful, really, despite that, we had a wonderful time together. And, uh, so we had an opportunity to share with each other uh, about our, our faith and uh, just certain things that we were curious about because this was a whole different culture for them, as you can imagine. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh, years ago, they, they showed uh, 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 a Russian fashion show. And there were, this woman would come out and say, evening there and, you know, uh, uh, all that kind of stuff. It's all the same outfit. I mean, you know, nothing changed except for one time she had a scarf. That was it. 
So, uh, so it was just a totally different culture for them. And, uh, and, but there was still this kind of underlying concern for or about competition, uh, which, which just sort of what ethnic group or what people group maybe kind of had a, uh, a better in on how you understand certain things. So one of the questions that was raised by the Russian people, a Russian person was, um, they said, and they, they asked me this question, they said, uh, when we are here on earth, we speak Russian and you speak English, um, but when we go to heaven, will we speak English or will we speak Russian? <laughs> So I saw the Cold War brewing back up again, you know. And, uh, but, you know, in that moment, it's amazing how it, it reminded me of the time when, when Jesus sent out the disciples and said, do not be concerned about what you will say, because the Holy Spirit will speak to you and give you the words that you need to, to, to be my witnesses. And at that moment, it's exactly what happened. Because what I said was, in heaven, there is neither Russian or English. The language that is spoken in heaven is the language of love. And we will understand that language thoroughly in our new, in our new glorified state, so there will be no confusion about what to say or how to say it. We will all speak um, the language of love. And so right before I answer that question, it's really, you could just see mostly the Russians sort of lean in to see what I was going to say, you know? And when I said what I said, they all leaned back and they smiled. Now, I didn't have the wisdom in me at the time to know what it is I would say. But in the spirit of the, the unity of the church and God's working in believers' lives, the Holy Spirit spoke to me very clearly, and I was able to say what I said, and, um, and that was an important moment. I mean, it wasn't huge, but it was kind of an important moment, you know, in, in, at that time in our lives. So maybe some of you um, have had similar experiences where uh, somebody may ask you a difficult question about life or about your faith. And if they were to ask you ahead of time, when you had time to think about it, you would have, you, you would have just spent too much time trying to think about what it was that you needed to say. But maybe you've had that experience where because you were kind of caught off guard and the only recourse you had, believe it or not, was to direct your thoughts to God about, oh no, what should I say? And God actually leads you to say what it is that you should say. Now maybe sometimes that happens to you, not just in things that are pertaining specifically to uh, spiritual things in a specific sort of way, but just maybe important things as it relates to life. So, you know, one of the 
interesting things about the scriptures and how we express our faith is this text uh, that was that Nicodemus was asked of um, Jesus, which is the most important commandment to follow, right? Remember that? And um, Jesus said, uh, well, you tell me. And so he recounted them. And then, uh, and then Jesus said, um, all of the law is summed up in this that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And so there's this understanding within the Christian faith that we are to love God above and beyond all of the things. And why is that? Because God claims to be worthy of that love. And he is. <clears throat> but it's also equally true that by loving God, we discover how to love each other and other things better. That the more I love God and the more I'm, I, I seek to know the mind of God, the heart of God, the more he informs me about how to love my wife better, how to love my children better, how to keep everything balanced so that I don't love things and, you know, so that I have things but they don't have me. Does this make sense to all of you? So years ago, <clears throat> we were driving in a car. We had a Ford Tempo at the time. And uh, I, I had picked Jeremiah up, who was about four, maybe five years of age. And he was in the car seat on the passenger side in the back. <clears throat> it was dark. And we were driving, and Jeremiah just asked this totally random question. I don't know. You know, you, you just never know what's on the mind of a four- or five-year-old sometimes. But he asked this totally random question. The question was this. <laughs> he said, Daddy? I said, yes, son. Do you love God more than you love me? Now, I, don't, I have no idea where that came from, and why he was thinking that. Um, and I thought, this is just, it's just really important that I answer this properly, right? Because I want to convey to him the importance of how, it is, how important it is to love God and yet still reaffirm the kind of love that I had for him where I would cheerfully give my life on his behalf. Cheerfully. So I wanted him to know the depth of the, my love for him. But this is what came to my mind. I said, son, I do love God more. But I want you to understand that because I love God more, he shows me how to love you better. And if I didn't love God as much as I do, I would not be as good of a father to you as I am, and I could not be an even better father to you, to you than what I need to be. It's the love of God that shows me how to be a better father to you. He understood it. In his little four or five-year-old mind, 
You got it. Now, I'm not saying every four or five-year-old mind is ready for that, but in that case, in that situation, I think those were the words that I was supposed to say. But if I'd, if I'd had been given an hour to think about that, I'm not sure that I would have said the same thing off the top of my head. I probably got into all kind of child development psychology and all that kind of stuff, you know, and ruined the whole thing. But the truth of the matter is, is that we have this person in our lives, for those of us who are believers, and we call him the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity. Now, just to give you a, a little tiny bit of background, you, you know that there, there are some people who believe that, that, that God revealed himself in kind of like three, what you would call dispensations. So that the Old Testament is mostly about, almost entirely about the God the Father. And that the Gospels uh, are almost entirely about God the Son. And that uh, post-resurrection, post-ascension, that now the church is really about the Holy Spirit. So there are some people who, when they pray, they pray to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the primary figure in their worship and experience when it comes to their Christian faith. I don't think that's orthodox. I don't think that's right teaching. I think that, um, I think that we understand God to be all three of those people. And so, and I have to bring it up on my phone here because I, I copied and pasted it so that I can read to you what the doctrine is because you, it's important that you understand the role of the Holy Spirit because that's what I'm gonna be talking about today as we continue this series when it comes to apologetics or the defense of the faith. So the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you may notice that sometimes when I pray or when we read certain prayers, we'll name in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we always include those three persons. Um, but this is, this, is the, this is the definition or a definition that I think is correct. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who, is, who eternally exists as three persons, three distinct persons, um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence and three in persons. These definitions express three crucial truths, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Each person is fully God. There is only one God. And so you may think, well, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the math I understand. Well, that's just probably just a different kind of heavenly math as we understand it. So God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in three distinct persons, but they are one. So. It's kind of like, and you've, you've heard this before, I've spoken about it before. I don't know if you know this. You, you know, that, you know that, that pretzel, the, the one that looks like this? Well, that pretzel was invented by a Roman Catholic monk. And he invented the pretzel, as I understand it, um, as a symbol for the Trinity. Um, and that it was used uh, in like the catechism for children religious instruction of children. So it was used kind of as a, as a, as a 
a visual aid, but also a reward. And so, but the, the pretzel is predicated on this doctrine that we call, um, and I know this is a $64,000 word, but it's predicated on the, the doctrine of what we call the pirkesis, or the divine dance. So you have God in the Father and in the Son, God the Father in the Son in the Holy Spirit, God the Son in the Father in the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit in the Son and in the Father. And there's this dynamic that makes up this essence called the Godhead. You have three distinct persons, but they are one in essence. So we participate, we who are believers, we participate in the divine, in this pirakesis, the divine dance. We are invited. And by the way, I just want to say this to you, that when Jesus was crucified on the cross and the Father, God the Father, removed himself from God the Son as judgment on him on our behalf. You following me? Jesus stepped outside the perichesis. For a period of time, he was no longer a part of the divine dance because God the Father separated himself as punishment on our behalf. So if you really kind of wonder what it might cost, have cost Jesus to do what he did on our behalf, can you imagine for all of eternity up until that point, God the Son always being in the perichesis and then suddenly for a, a period of time no longer participating in the divine dance? How horrible that must have been. But he did it because of his great love for us. So, in any case, if you want to, uh, just by way of catching people up in terms of where we are, remember that we're talking about why do unbelievers choose to reject Christ? What, is, what are some of the biblical texts? And this is just a thumbnail outline, and then we'll get into the text that I want to talk about for this morning. The first is um, that for some people, God is fall. And I'm sorry, um, that the things of God are folly to him. That is the, 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 the natural man or the unbeliever. They are the things of God are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. So there are many people of, who can't or won't believe in Jesus because the things of God are folly. So again, and I really want to state this because you, we run into the word folly quite a bit. And what folly means biblically is useless. So for the natural man, the unbeliever, the things of God are useless to him. And so... Because they're useless to him, they, can't, they just can't understand the things of God. So there are many unbelievers who simply can't understand. Secondly, <clears throat> Paul says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So there are many people who do not believe in God, believe in Jesus, believe in his work, believe in his existence, because the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded them. The second most powerful entity apart from the Trinity has blinded them. 
if we are unbelievers, we are at risk of being blinded. <clears throat> and so um, I just want to read this part here about um, uh, Satan and, and how we understand it, at least partially, biblically speaking. The Jews of New Testament times actively believed in the reality of Satan and demons. The word Satan literally means the accuser. So get this. The person who is actively blinding people from believing in God is the very one who, during the judgment, will sit there and say, he never believed in you. But he does not say, because I blinded them. Now, how fair is that? It's not fair. It's deceptive. But he is the accuser. He is the one that will say, this person never obeyed. This person never followed. This person was never godly. But he will not say, because I blinded them so that they could not see. So Satan was the chief demon, seen to be a kind of rival to God himself, as the Jews understood it. Demon possession was a common malady and nearly always hostile to the person it possessed and to those with whom they possessed persons had contact with. Sometimes a person could be possessed by many demons at the same time. Possession could be permanent or intermittent, as in the case of the boy who had seizures. The distinction between exorcism and healing was not always clear in antiquity due to a large measure to the realization that disease and ailments could be caused by demons or by sin. So uh, that's how people understood uh, Satan at that time. And so it's, it's, it's equally important to understand that Satan is this incredibly powerful and influential person who, by the grace of God, is held back from doing more than what he would really want to do in this world if he could. It's the grace of God that prevents Satan from doing more. And, and really, you know, uh, I, I think I mentioned this before years ago. If you, you want to get what I think is kind of like an insight, a, a fairly accurate picture of it, you should read the Frank Peretti novels. I mean, I think, I think that he, I think he's on to something there about how in the metaphysical world, the world that's beyond the physical world, I think that I think he's on to something there about how he, he shows the battles that rage between the angels and demons and how demons are seeking to influence and to destroy us, but we were protected by angels in that regard. I, I think there's something to that. I wouldn't say it's gospel, but I think there's something to that. And by the way, and this is a rabbit trail, but it's an important rabbit trail, I want to mention to you that um, when I talk about the metaphysical world, meta meaning beyond the physical world, that that, fit, that meta world is more substantial than the physical world. We have it all backwards. When we think of a spiritual world, we think of something that's vapory, ethereal, wispy, 
Jesus was able to walk through walls and walk on water because he was more substantial, not less. For him to walk through a wall was like you and me like walking through smoke or a vapor. When humanity fell, they fell away from that subsistence, that, that substantial thing. When humanity fell, we became less and the world became less. It still holds a lot of its form, but it's not like it was. And when we die and go to heaven, we become more substantial. When we're in our glorified state, we become more than what we are now. We are harder. And nobody depicts that better than C.S. Lewis does in The Great Divorce. If I had time, I'd read you chapter 4 or chapter 2 of that. It's phenomenal, the image that he gives there. So, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And then third, their minds are set on the flesh in other words, their minds are set on the physical world. To them, it's the physical world that it's the only thing that exists. That's it. There isn't anything beyond this world. And they simply say, well, you can't prove what lies beyond this world. And I will simply say to them, you have the wrong instrument to, to prove what's beyond this world. If you have an instrument that only measures water, that same instrument cannot be used to say whether or not air exists. Do you think fish have any idea that air exists? No. Because they live in water. Their whole, their whole empirical existence and experience is in the water. They have no idea about air or about space, the universe. To them, none of that exists because they have the wrong instrument to know, the wrong experiences to know. So there is more to the physical world than what we think. So let's turn to John chapter 16, if you like. And uh, <clears throat> we're, we're just going to pick it up at uh, verse 1, um, and we'll read through 16 or, or in, in and about there. And so as you turn to that, in your Bibles or on your phones, it's important to provide the context here of what's going on as Jesus says what he says. In his last moments with his disciples, Jesus, one, told them where, when, and why he was going, so he was beginning to say that he was about to leave this world. Number two, he told them where, when, and I'm sorry, I, 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 I have two, uh, two uh, of the same there. That's... Um, I'll just go on to number three. Number three, he assured them they would not be left alone, but, the, but that the Spirit would come. And that he wanted them know, to know that God wants you to know that you are not alone. And that you have the Holy Spirit to comfort you, to teach you truth, and to help you. And so that's a lot of what's going on in this chapter 16. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, that is Jesus, but none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You're sad that I'm leaving. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying that if I stay here, then you will not have the Holy Spirit. You think, well, okay, so why is that a problem? Because Jesus was embodied. So he was in a certain place at a certain time. So in his fully God, fully human state, there was a built-in limitation about where he could be by his own design so that he could fulfill the purpose for which he had come to earth. But the Holy Spirit has no limitation. The Holy Spirit is God's way of being omnipresent in the world in which we live. Omnipresent means he's everywhere at all times, in all places. So the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Jesus, when he was fully God and fully man, was not omnipresent. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, he talks about how he set aside some of his godly attributes while here on earth. So when Jesus would leave, then God could send the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit then is moving throughout. In fact, that's one of the reasons why people are without excuse. If they say, I never heard of you, I didn't know about you, God would simply say, look, my Holy Spirit was on, the, on, on earth. He was omnipresent. If your heart was open, you could hear me speak. But you didn't. You didn't respond to my presence. You could have known. And you knew instinctively, intuitively you could have known. But you chose not to. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The NIV has an interesting take on this uh, in this same text. Verse 8. And the NIV, NIV says, and when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong. And what the world is guilty of. And what is the world guilty of? Not just sin, but not believing. So, and why is that a problem? Well, it's, it's a problem because... <clears throat> Because by not believing, we reject this great sacrifice and gift that Jesus gave to us. We reject this phenomenal thing where he's saving us from ourselves. And the only thing that we have to do is respond to what he did for us. But if we reject that, then we place ourselves in serious jeopardy. So when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. And the sin is unbelief. The sin here is unbelief. I mean, in addition to all the other sins. And, 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 and this is not... 
I mean, this is not designed like, you know, I'm all too familiar with, you know, some of those pastors who all they talk about is sin and you hear judgment and condemnation. Of that. That's not where I'm coming from here. Where I'm coming from is that this is our nature and our condition, and God has made provision for our nature and our condition, and we can know that he's made that provision, but we choose not to. And in choosing not to, we are guilty of that sin, and that is the primary sin for which we are condemned. Concerning sin and righteousness. So righteousness having to do with, uh, you know, the, the conviction that comes with understanding why we are apart from God, right, righteousness in terms of right living. We've all, been, we've all been in circumstances where we know when we've done something that we should not have done so, or thought something we should not have thought. And I can remember probably when I was about the same age as my son Jeremiah, four or five years of age, I had this younger brother, 13 months younger than me, who was being annoying and we lived in Washington, PA at the time, and we had this, most of you won't know what this is, but we had a coal cellar in our house, right? And there was a, there was a you had the front yard and there was this cutout in the yard that you, you could get to the door, open the door and go into the coal cellar. Well, that was about two or three feet high, and so I decided to push them off that little wall down into that thing, you know. And as younger brothers are prone to do, they always scream louder than what they should if something happens to them, right? Because they know that parents are going to come flying to their defense and all that kind of thing. So I remember pushing him down and, and thinking at the time that I needed to separate myself from this thing that I did so that I could not be associated with, you know, him lying at the bottom of that thing, crying and all that kind of stuff. And and I knew my mother would be seconds before she would be out the front door standing on the porch looking to see what happened. And so I ran. And as I ran at that age, I can remember very clearly, just as sure as I'm standing here, I can remember very clearly thinking that what I had done was wrong, that I was guilty. And I was trying to run really fast and it felt like somebody was holding me back so that I could be spotted closer to the scene of the crime. I remember that very clearly. And I think that was probably my first encounter with the Holy Spirit. Telling me, you're, you're guilty. You did not love your brother. You shoved your brother, right? So... Uh, you know, it was uh, not brotherly love, but brotherly shove. So I remember that very clearly. And I think that was my first encounter with the Holy Spirit in my life. What I had done was not righteous. It was not a right act. The problem is, <clears throat> is that we get to practice our unrighteousness so much that we become immune and calloused to a lot of unrighteous acts and thoughts and beliefs. It just gets easier and easier to sin without conviction. And you know, you all know what I mean when I say that. So imagine yourself as a child and you're, one of your parents wanted you to do something. My father used to have this saying, 
that I've only begun to appreciate uh, later in life. <clears throat> Maybe some of you heard this. A, um, a thing in its place, no, how's it go? A place for a thing and everything in its, yeah, a place for everything and everything in its place. A place for everything and everything in its place. Any of you ever hear that before? And, uh, and so, but he used to say it so much and over what I would consider to be some trivial things that I became calloused. I mean, it is true. That is a good principle, right? I mean, because it means basically you don't have to be a slob and unorganized if there's a place for everything and everything in its place. But I became callous to it. So I wonder if you think about being a child, some things that your parents might have said to you, and you just turned on the automatic pilot. You just didn't listen to it as much because it just, it just didn't have the effect that they wanted it to have. So you grew calloused, hardened. And we do the same thing with the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us. We grow calloused and hardened because he's very faithful in revealing to us what it is that we should do or how we should think. But the better we get at ignoring him, the more deaf we become to what it is he's trying to say. And so it is, especially with the unbeliever, the Holy Spirit may try to bring conviction to their life, but if they get really good at ignoring what the Holy Spirit is saying, then they become calloused and almost deaf and so much more susceptible to the God of this age who is blinding the mind of the unbeliever. And then judgment is the third part of verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Um, judgment concerning sin because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And so, um, <clears throat> so that righteous example, uh, God the, the Son is not there. And then concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And in these ways, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, that is the sin. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And so we need the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to us and to tell us what is righteous. And then concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so the Holy Spirit brings us comfort by saying, look, understand that regardless of what Satan does now, he loses. And you don't have to lose with him. Because you can believe. So um, what does this have to do with apologetics? Well, it has to do with the fact that there are many people who live in the world, who will not heed, they will not listen, they will not consider what the Holy Spirit has to say. They are rebellious towards him, and their hearts have become calloused. And you could be Billy Graham. You could be the Apostle Paul. 
but their hearts are so hardened to the voice of the Holy Spirit that they can't hear him. And so you think, well, I'm not being, fa- I'm not being successful. Our job as believers is not to be successful. Our job as believers is to be faithful. God is the one that takes care of the success. And in God's economy, what looks like success to him probably looks a lot different than that to us. Because he knows how it all works.